0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. actually the first episode of 2024. So welcome to season four, if I remember correctly, or maybe I'm a bit wrong. Uh, but we've been doing this podcast for a number of years now. And if you've been tuning in year after year, first of all, thanks for doing that. Second of all, you're familiar that the first episode of the year typically is uh, me having a guest to talk about what the outlook for the year is um and this year as if you're following pakistan you kind of know the big event is the election that is coming up um or some say the selection. we'll talk to my guest about that um and imf comes right after that so it's going to be a very busy at least first half of the year and if you follow pakistani politics Uh, and its economy, then predicting anything beyond three to five months is sort of a thing you should not do (laughs) because you never know what's going to happen. So my guest today is a dear friend. Uh, She's also a journalist at DAWN. Uh, She hosts a show NewsWise on DAWN uh, as well. Um, and somebody who has a very good sense of what's going on uh, in terms of the broader political economy, Arfa Noor. Uh, Arfa also wrote a wonderful column this week. She writes a wonderful column every week, but this one in particular was really good because hers came and then Zaid Hussain's uh, column came, and I want to have uh, Zaid-Sahab on as well because he's called the selection, a selection in the first paragraph. So I was like, that's very bold of Zaid-Sahab to like go out on a, uh, some would say on a limb. Uh, because others are saying we will see on election day. So we'll talk all about that. So Arfa, uh, welcome to Pakistanamy and thank you for taking out thank the time you. today.
1: No, no, thank you. Thank you for ask, not just asking me, but also such a wonderful intro. I feel like sort of messaging you and saying, I'll send the the check will be in the mail kind of a thing for that <laughs> PR
0: the <laughs> <laughs> state Bank ko main pehle ta, clear <laughs> payment. Um, shuru karte <laughs> let's start with sort of on a lighter note, twenty twenty four three was like a crazy crazy year across all domains. Uh, what's your we were talking pre- previous as prep for this podcast. What's your self-care routine going to be like in twenty twenty four to stay sane
1: uh, I would just say not just twenty twenty three but even twenty twenty two and if I look you know before that, I think since COVID, it's been kind of a roller coaster ride. Perhaps for the world it slowed down a bit uh, once the vaccination turned up. But for Pakistan, you know, the twists and the turns and the roller coaster ride goes on. Vaccine
0: ke side effects.
1: So, you know, it's been crazy. And I don't think 2024 is going to be all that difficult uh, different for us. So uh I think the best self-care would be to just switch off from politics. But unfortunately, now, if I want to pay the bills for my self-care, I will have to keep an eye on politics. And uh, that, unfortunately, is going to be life for us in Pakistan.
0: Well, you may want to follow Modi ji's advice and do yoga, which does you don't yeah. require to pay anybody for that. You can do it in the garden all on your own. So, you know, yes. India, India is giving you good advice on that one.
1: Uh, India is giving us good advice. But as I said, you know, I, the, the entire sort of any journalist in Pakistan right now, it makes sure that there is no self-care involved. In fact, it makes sure that we are sort of all suffering from PTSD.
0: Well, yeah, so but that I, is
1: going to be Pakistan.
0: I think that's a that's a price uh, many of you uh, or all of you uh, pay in 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 Pakistan, and it's been very very difficult. And you know, in conversations you and I have, and I have with others as well, um, there is a genuine, like now on a serious note, a genuinely sort of growing concern about what you can and cannot say, and can and cannot write, and what do you write between the lines, what do you leave to the reader to sort of, you know, understand on their own, given their knowledge of what's going on. Um, So maybe I'll start there, right? You're a journalist in this environment. Like, how are you operating in terms of conveying information to the people at a time when, A, there's a lot of, like, repression all around us, at least we see uh, and hear about it. I'm seeing it at a distance, uh, from a distance. But there's also pre-election communications operations, right? Just the, the daily dose of like a specific point of view on all sides coming out. So how are you operating in that environment as a journalist and getting the information out there?
1: Um, Uzair, it's not easy. Uh, but you know, I, I have to say here that we should always re- remember when it comes to Pakistan that there is a historical context to it. So perhaps it's important to say that, you know, it's not as if, as if journalism was ever all that easy in Pakistan. I remember one of the first, I don't know who said it. I can't even remember whether somebody said it or I read it. But it's a lesson that I always remember and I tell everyone that, you know, Pakistan may journalism is like guerrilla journalism. You attack you know you succeed then you retreat you lay low till you get the second moment so you know and it's very important because when we were taught or when i first read this sentence there was no concept of suicide bombing so you know guerrilla journalism journalism was basically a war of attrition that you carried out over decades if not and years. if i
0: if i may interrupt you this you told me this uh, earlier as well uh-huh. um this comes from the generation of journalists who taught you and many of us learned from their writings from the zia Yes. yes that's the context yes.
1: here yes yes they they uh, perhaps the zia years or immediately after the zia years because you know there was a lot of these people uh, perhaps began towards the end of the zia years when the the opening was coming because most of my teachers are people or the the mentors that i had these are the people who learned in those years when space was opening up if they were in lahore You know, they had worked for the News or the Frontier Post in those days. The ones in Karachi had worked for the Star, Herald, Newsline. So this is that period where journalism was opening up after that very heavy censorship. But even then, you know, you had to know where the the red lines were. You knew how to, as you said, uh, say, say things between the lines. And then you also knew that if you had, you know, hit somebody hard or, hit a sensitive spot, then you also lay low for a while before you come back or you sort of, you know, know, put your head out again. So it's always been like that. But of course, there has been something particularly difficult, I would say, about the last four or five years. Um, There's been, there's a new flavor to it in a way. I think in the post-Musharraf period when the television, uh, television channels were coming out, um, one after the other, there were so many of them, two things were happening simultaneously. One was, of course, that with this explosion of television channels, standards dropped, Standard dropped uh, from the, ju- the point of view of journalism. So when something like that happens, then there's always that fear that this will also lead to some kind of a backlash. And I think the second thing has been that over the past five, six years. I mean, you know, it's hard to exactly pinpoint and say, oh, it started here or it didn't start there. But because of the new environment, a new environment in this, in which there was television, there was a lot of opinion, there was, uh, it was not so easy to control because of the frequency. Social media was yet to come. The state has also developed new ways of controlling that information. And so it's, slowly and steadily you know I think the difficulties are increasing at the same time uh, social media has changed this it's changed it in the way that it's very difficult now to control the flow of information so you know there are checks there are numerous checks on mainstream media but there's always social media so it comes with its own baggage lots of problems we keep talking about fake information disinformation but at the same time it allows a voice to be there that so far, you know, uh, the powers that be, as we call them, cannot completely control. And I think it's important to recognize that, especially because there is an international angle to this also, where, you know, there is the prevalent view, and then there is a view which is coming from a minority, but is now making a difference.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Mm. as a very senior person out of the Islamabad Pindi Corridor recently told some people that I know that it's not social media, it's shaitani media, and we need to control it. Um, I I fundamentally disagree with that uh, perspective. But even there, I think, and I would love your thoughts on this, right? Because we we are exposed to a lot of the daily information coming from social media, and Being able to tell the truth from what what is fake or what is being put out there is hard, even when you're consuming it that much. You feel like okay, you would have some immunity, but it's difficult. But I sort of noticed this in the last year as I started thinking more actively about the role of social media. It's not just what's on Twitter slash X or on Facebook or Instagram. I remember as a child, I grew up in the same neighborhood uh, that my parents still live in. The Jumma Khutbah by the imam, who's still the imam there, uh, used to be informed by jang, ummat, or the paper special edition that would come out on Fridays. Uh, you may remember that that used to be, the gives me or so you kind of knew that if certain segments So your the, the resonance was there in the Jummah khutba. And now we joke, like I was joking with my father about this and some of the other uh, people I know who still attend the mosque when I went recently, that the khutbah is now informed by WhatsApp. Now, you can't control WhatsApp. Um, And so Imam-Sahab is not on Twitter or consuming tweets. He's consuming WhatsApp.
1: WhatsApp forwards.
0: WhatsApp forwards, memes in Urdu, clips (laughs) in Urdu that are edited, not edited. And you can't put that in a, that genie in a bottle again, because let's be honest, the government's own functionings would stop if you did that, control that shaitani part of the shaitani media if you were to believe in that. So I think at some point you got to let it be and you got to sort of elevate the level of discourse, which brings me to my question to you. And you said standards decline in mainstream media, particularly electronic or television media. Um, help the listener understand what do you mean by that decline of standards, like what exactly would you sort of put it in that bucket? Is it the quality of discourse? Is it the types of people running primetime shows? Is it the lack of research? like what what specifically sort of was has been this declining trajectory?
1: I think it's a little bit of everything you put your finger on it. It's never one factor. So first, we have to keep in mind the larger context. Before Musharraf opened up, the general retired Musharraf opened up, uh, you know, the electronic media, you had a handful of newspapers, the print media in this country. And that was that was where your resource was, your uh, trained human resource. And suddenly from that, you move on to an environment in which you have, you know, you begin with five television channels, then it becomes 10, 15. So, but your the trained professionals that are there. Uh, just coming from this these newspapers so obviously a lot of the positions were filled by young people by senior people perhaps who weren't aware of what journalism was or on the job training right so that's factor number one so everybody's looking for people everybody's picking up people some of them are new some of them are old some will Adapt very quickly. The people who come from print are not necessarily good at the electronic media. Those who do well with the electronic media necessarily don't have the experience. So, you know, there's that point. Then you're changing the frequency uh, very, very rapidly. I mean, you're talking about one newspaper or, you know, bringing out a newspaper once a day, as you said. then perhaps a few media groups would have an evening paper that would come out that would also be just a few pages exactly be, you know not every media group had that version it was just a one the just the bigger ones who would be able to do that so you you have that resource but then you're talking about 24 7 news channel you have to fill the air and then television is an expensive industry, which is why when you look around the West, you will find two or perhaps three news channels in a developed country like the US or the UK for that matter. So you have to think what happens when a country like Pakistan with a very small economy is running 30 to 40 or more news channels. What will happen is that they will have far smaller budgets and those budgets will not allow for reporting which is very expensive on tv channels and if i may interrupt you
0: because i'll bring the economic part of my Mm -hmm. brain is kicking in then there will be a race to the bottom for virality or sensationalism because that's how you capture the eyeball and that's the the shrinking not even a growing pie a shrinking pie of advertising budgets has to be commanded through that
1: Exactly. But also within that, the last point would be that when you're not just uh, the shrinking pie and the, you know, you're uh, appealing to the lowest common denominator, but also because you don't, you don't have the money to invest into documentaries or reportage, which would mean sending out people into the field, then they come back, then they edit, they put it together. What do you do? So you basically hire anchors, hosts, talk show hosts, you build a studio, and you fill you know, if you have a six hour slot, I mean, television usually la- runs on, you know, six hour slots programming, which you will then repeat for the rest of the day. Think about it from six o'clock, no, seven o'clock in the evening till midnight, you have talk shows. So you you hire the 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 talk show host, and you have a studio, and then the rest of the guests are just coming, you know, the, the conveyor belt, the guests are coming in and leaving and you're talking about the same issues again and again. So not only is it very repetitive and that's where the sensationalism comes in, but also what it basically means is that it's talking heads. You don't have enough facts. You don't have the resources to report and clarify or add to the debate. You're basically just letting people talk. So even the talk show host Becomes known for his or her opinions. The guests become known for his or you know his or her opinions, and that's all that's happening. People are talking to each other or at each other. So, for me, as someone who's old-fashioned, I and I'm the first to admit it. This obsession with so much opinion is what bothers me. I mean, we're not reporting anymore. We're just you know everybody has an opinion and everybody gets to air it and that's what's happening so this is also a problem because once you start airing just opinion the next problem that comes in is as you said that you know the the person who shouts the loudest the person who's the more theatrical will not necessarily be saying the right thing or have the right information but they will get the eyeballs and then it's also very easy for the, the misinformation to be out there. Because, you know, coming back to that idea which you mentioned earlier, which is about the social media and how there is a lot of uh, misinformation, I completely agree. But my concern here always is, or my solution here is, that if the mainstream media had more credibility, it would be able to say, well, you know, this is correct or this is not. But if the mainstream media's credibility is also short, which is what is happening in Pakistan, then who is going to counter that WhatsApp forward? And who is going to get up and say, well, it's not correct. And who will believe that person? So, you know, for me, the credibility is a very important part of it. And I think the mainstream media could have played a role. But once its own credibility has been so affected for lack of a better word, then I think the WhatsApp forwards will rule the roost.
0: Yeah, and and I think um that that's a good segue into where we are right now and the elections that are coming up. Um I was watching Hwajasisab yesterday on on Khan Zada's show, just to, you know, because he was being asked about the campaigning the PMLN is doing. And that made me think the two leading candidates for prime minister in pakistan let's say there are three bilawal bhutto at number 3 distant past like you know not not in the running at least that's my view on on the situation but the people's party's pm candidate mian nawaz four time prime minister candidate um, and Imran Khan, uh, aka Qasim Gabbam, um, we're on YouTube, so we can say Imran Khan. <laughs> you know, um, one's in jail, the other one basically in house arrest voluntarily because he had his coronation moment in in at Minare, Pakistan, and then hasn't, at least as my mind recollects, hasn't done a major jalsa since then. And we're in January 5th now, basically a month away from elections. Um, what's the election feel like in Pakistan this time around? Because 2018 and 13, I vividly remember, was proper campaigning. Whereas right now in Khwajah was accepting on Khwanzada's show that, yeah, we need to up the tempo here because we're not engaging with the voter that much. And of course, uh, the PTI is left to hosting virtual jalsas, which then leads to a throttling of the internet magically. So what's, what's the ground situation in elections like right now?
1: A lot of uncertainty. Uh, so in the drawing rooms, and you know, the drawing rooms of Pakistan are also a place where politi- a lot of politics happens. The drawing rooms are constantly asking when the elections will be held.
0: or so they're still will down.
1: They be held? Huh. Will they be held? So, you know, every time you meet somebody in Islamabad, the first question to each other is, do you think elections will be held? So, you know, we're still having that conversation and the Senate resolution that you passed, uh, uh, mentioned earlier, is not regular. Really I did
0: not pass it, Arfa. Sorry, my, 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 my bad. You mentioned it.
1: You mentioned it. I have the passing on my head because, you know, shortly before this, we were all giving beepers for the television channels on what does ye, this mean? This is this is it so, um, you know, I, I think that question is still there, there is just far too much uncertainty. And the the fact that the political parties are not out there in the field is adding to the uncertainty. So, you know, when you mentioned 2013 and 2018, just recently, just yesterday or day before, I was having this conversation with the colleagues and we were saying exactly this, that you know there were there was there were a lot of problems in the run up to the 2018 election also there was particularly even then there was one party that was being targeted there was another political party that was being propped up but it was still a good contest at the end of the day the two political parties in punjab the pakistan tehreek South and the pmln fought a good battle i mean you know you could say that in every constituency, they went at each other and both of them knew that, you know, if we put up a good fight, we could change the result. And that was the mood back then. In 2013, perhaps, uh, obviously, you know, PTI was not such a big force then, but it was still, um, I think there was a lot of excitement. There was definitely a lot of campaigning that was happening. There was a lot of excitement because obviously, uh, the, the Just the fact that a transition was taking place, that a parliament had completed its term and now an election was taking place and another party would come into power also added to the excitement, even though I think it was quite clear who was going to win. If there was any surprise of 2013, I think it would just be that PTI did extremely well in Khyber Pakhtunkha. Otherwise, the result was not a surprise. But this time around, as you said, you know, PTI is just dealing with a lot of challenges, for lack of a better word. Uh, PMLN is surprisingly not moving from the parliamentary board meeting phase. And they have lots of reasons and lots of excuses for it. But Give they're me the not top three. What,
0: what are What are the reasons? Why are they doing that?
1: So, you know, the main reason always turns out to be that, oh, you know, we want to make sure that we give out the right tickets to the right people so that the election campaign goes really well and we manage to win a lot of uh, um, seats. Another one which has been put forward off the record is that, you know, Nawaz Sharif has come back after such a long time. And these lengthy meetings give him a chance to interact with all the people from the constituencies, because you see, once you start looking at the, the possible candidates from one district, they will all turn up for that meeting. So that meeting becomes very long because they all get a chance to say something and he is there and, you know, it's making up for all these lost years. It's, I suppose, you can't discount it uh, uh, entirely because, but what they don't say, but what the rest of the country can see is the fact that the PMLN is perhaps, uh, in terms of its connection with the people, uh, you know, at a moment, which is a very difficult one for the party.
0: Well, that's what I was going to say, if I may interrupt you. Like if if the district candidates, let's say, are sort of visiting... Mia home to pay their respects and convince him that they're the right horse for this race that gets into this disconnect right because typically an election campaign is the leader that goes to the district to engage with the people on the ground or also the electables or the candidates on the ground give their vision of what they want to do and convince them and energize them whereas if it's in the reverse Then obviously it's seen as a selectoral process, as less of an electoral process, where you're not really going down to the ground to even understand or bother understanding what it is that people care about at that point, at this point in time, right? I mean, that's a fundamental flaw in the strategy from what I see. I wouldn't,
1: you see, so... In Pakistan, obviously, political parties always do this kind of brainstorming, I think, from the little that I know is an outsider, sitting in their party headquarters a lot of the time. You know, the applications come in, you you do that. But this is a process which is usually carried out behind the scenes. It is not the process that becomes the face of the party during the election campaign. And for me, this is the the, the problem, that when the election is coming nearer, then the main thing for a political party is to be seen campaigning. You know, your your candidates are holding corner meetings. Um, they, the the party leadership is making more than one appearance a day. I mean, if it's someone like, uh, you know, if you talk about Pakistan Tariq and Saaf, and it has one star, so to say, then Imran Khan would be making two to three appearances in a day because he has to make sure that he goes to all the critical districts or areas.
0: Which he While was doing before he was put in jail. Like yes, he was a man on a mission every day. Exactly. He went
1: every day he was somewhere. And in you know, in, in the run to the 2018 election, I think he was doing more than one a day. While the PMLN, of course, because the Sharif family is there, they can afford to split up. And, you know, perhaps not take on such a cruel schedule for, one individ- for an individual, but they, the family can divide up and, you know, go to different districts all in the same day. But this time around, none of that is happening. And as I said, you know, the PMLN has their version of why this is not happening, but I don't think it's very convincing. And this is why a lot of people feel that, Sharif in particular, and the rest of the party also do realize that there is a serious problem on the ground. The the voters are not happy with them. The crisis is growing. But now whether they're worried about that and hence not stepping out, or there is the, the other argument, which is that they're so confident that they will be brought into power that they don't want to bother. So I think it's a little bit of both. You also know that if you go out there, it will not be a very pleasant sight. Perhaps, you know, people will be able to capture footage of uh, the unenthusiastic voters who turn up or the participants of the Jalsa may say something, you know, the crowds aren't big enough. And then there is the confidence that if not us, who? So why bother? So it's it's a little bit of both.
0: Yeah, so I'll say. get to the the implications of that and Zaidou Sandsav's thesis, which I would love for you to answer whether you agree with his view or not, but we'll get to that in a minute. Let's switch to the other leading party, right, that is in the running, um, PTI. <clears throat> Leader in jail, um, second-tier leadership being hounded, so limited sort of amount or capability to interact with people on the ground. But despite that, <clears throat> at least from a distance, from my point of view, Um, I hear and see that the popularity remains intact, particularly in Khabar Pakhtunkhwa and segments of Punjab and places like Karachi. Um, But at the same time, the criticism to the party has been that they've abandoned sort of their workers um, in the sense of the, the ones that have stuck around and given leadership positions to lawyers who, you know, up until a couple of years ago, weren't really anywhere to be seen in the party. And weren't the face of the party, which then is a question over the strategy of engaging with the people. How do how are you seeing the PTI's strategy at this point in time in the face of immense repression, immense pressure, uh, restricted ability to campaign and rally their people? Like, how are they faring uh, given the dynamics at play here?
1: It's really tough to say because I think you know in Pakistan's history, whenever a political party is being pressured, we always come up with, you know, they did this wrong and they did this wrong. And, and it was the same in 2018. Oh, PMLN wasn't really clear about what their, um, you know, slogan is going to be. And then there was... Don
0: Leaks, Don Leaks, the... leaks ja, better so,
1: but, you know, I think that at the end of the day, all of this is irrelevant because whatever do you do, I mean, whether it's 2018... Um, or in Panama, oh, they should have had better lawyers. They shouldn't have. Why did they bring the Qatri Khat? So it's the same with the PTI. Whatever. Why would they? Why have they brought the lawyers forward? Why haven't? Why aren't they doing a more effective job of arguing in the courts? They've taken the the appeal to the wrong court. But all of this is irrelevant because the point is that that pressure is just not going to ease. It's not about strategy. So that caveat aside, I think that. Uh, the the problem um, the reason they've chosen the workers is because to a large extent even the uh, sorry the reason they've chosen the lawyers is because to a large extent even the workers are underground and facing considerable problems and have been there have been raids people have been arrested People are either in jail, you know, some have come out. I mean, the, the the numbers that we're talking about, I think, get to a point where it's really hard for a journalist sitting in a samba to get a sense of how difficult it is for a political party to operate right now. But even the workers have been picked up. Even the workers have been arrested. There were a couple of cases in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa Khaw, again, the, uh, you know, the province where the party is... Um, so popular that the police had problems picking up the workers. But uh, in Punjab, obviously, it's far more difficult for the party to operate. So I think they eventually felt that they had no choice because at least the lawyers, because of the, the lobbying of the lawyers, uh, legal community itself will have a better chance to stay, um, to stay free uh, to be able to put their you know sub- submit their papers and make it through so i think that is the logic right now whatever they're doing is basically in terms of sheer survival and and i say that because as i said parties in the past have all had to deal with this so it's no different here in that sense whether they could have done something better or worse i think perhaps in hindsight I personally may have a better chance of being able to judge this or not, because it's just um, just chaos at the moment with the political party. I mean, we don't even know who the candidates will be. They don't know who the candidates will be because nobody can access Imran Khan. I mean, how do you even talk to a, a man who's in jail, you know, who's not allowed to even appear in court?
0: He's in solitary putting... per his own claims, uh, you know, in the
1: latest solitary economy. solitary or not, but the point is that access is not The political party's second tier is All of the second tier is underground. Either they've left the party or they're underground or they're in jail. Uh, and in all three cases, the politicians have no access to the party leader. The only one who can talk to him directly um, are the lawyers. So imagine in this situation, how do you even decide the party tickets? You have no idea. I mean, there's no way of talking to the workers. There's no way of finding out what's happening in a particular constituency. Who do you think is a better candidate or not? I don't know how they're going to carry this out. So. At least the lawyers have that ability to communicate, to communicate with Imran Khan or to uh, you know, uh, get out there, talk to the media. Uh, I'll just give you one example. So when they submitted their papers earlier uh, in Lahore, only the papers of two candidates who we know are associated with PTI were accepted, Shafkat mahmood and Salman Akram Raja for the same constituency. This situation is changing because obviously they have now, you know, they're going to the election tribunals and a lot of their papers are being accepted, but I'm just saying that. Imagine, I think today uh,
0: Shah Mahmood Qureshi's was accepted as well. Huh.
1: well. As I said, now the situation is changing and we'll have a better idea, but in that initial phase, only two candidates. And by the way, both of them had submitted papers for the same constitution. will end up with a party ticket. If there is a party ticket to, be, uh, to uh, um, you know, uh, except, uh, frankly speaking, we're not even sure about that at the moment. So I think that they're just basically, um, you know, making it up as they go along, because they just have no idea.
0: And and I wouldn't blame them, right? I mean, I was reading the piece uh, Hansa wrote for The Economist uh, this week, uh, uh, and I'll try to put the link in the description. If I were to assess the strategy of a leader, and or let's say compare it in 2018, like he still got a better strategy. The man is able to get his message out in the international press from solitary confinement, as he himself writes uh, in the piece. And I'm like, there's, there's, as you said, you know, when the headwind is so strong, there's nothing. The strategy isn't going to be optimal in any way, shape, or form. And even despite that, he's able to dominate the headline in an international publication by putting his view out there and really calling into question the legitimacy of the upcoming election which is you know i would say this is kudos to them right the fact that they figured that part out is is a good point of their strategy to get the message out um but let me pivot to the election and what the likely scenario Sorry, may i just add a
1: point here Uh, because you're talking about strategy i i would say yes i mean you know whatever they can manage but uh, A lot of the credit also goes to the other side, because the kind of repression that is taking place. And I know, you know, in Pakistan, we have this whole debate of whether it's precedented or unprecedented and whatever. But you also end up providing uh, the Pakistan Tehreek-e-Insaf with such a lot of fuel. You know, if your candidates are just the fact that the party leader is all his case trials are taking place inside the jail. You know, and then the papers are being rejected and people are underground. And every second discussion on television is why haven't they apologized for May 9th? Are they repenting or not? So then it also it gives you all that publicity that you perhaps were not even looking for you know, you, you, get, you get to play the victim card and you also get a lot of publicity and attention, which frankly speaking, um, you know, um, is not about strategy or anything else. It's just about the fact that here is a man who scares everybody in Pakistan. That's what it boils down to, one man against the system. They have made him that man, more than he himself could have projected himself to be that man. And they have made him this this victim, So what else do you need?
0: Yeah, I think if there's one thing that we can all agree on from Pakistan's history is that Pakistan is generally speaking love an underdog story. I mean, people Hmm. generally all over the world do, um, you know, but Pakistan in particular, or this region, South Asia in particular, has that tendency. So, yeah, you created that. You're fueling the underdog story. So let's switch to the election and and the scenarios at play in, in terms of the contest that's coming up. Uh your colleague, somebody I really respect and pay attention to his views i do has basically said it's not it's a farce essentially if I were to sum up that column and I'll link that for people who want to read it um one do you agree with that view that it's already determined that p m l n Mia Miasav is coming back, and if that's the case, as you describe right aptly, and I agree that there's a disconnect between the people and the party? You have a lot of work to do post-election to stabilize or maintain stability in Pakistan. There's an IMF program that needs to be carried forward and extended or a new one negotiated. Um, There are challenges with relations to foreign policy, Afghanistan in particular right now, given the violence that's brewing. um, And broadly speaking, this view in the peripheries of the country, particularly Balochistan and brewing in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa as well, that the center needs to do something different because people are getting agitated and rightfully so. And Mr. Carker, the caretaker prime minister, is I think only making the situation worse by his statements. But if that's if the electoral contest has been decided, does the party coming into power recognize that it has a very short leash upon which it has to opt, like sort of do the things that are needed to be done?
1: I hope it does. I hope it does. And I, I would say that perhaps one of the reasons we see so little of Nawaz Sharif is because he realizes that this is really not um, a good situation to be in. And in that sense, I think it's very different from 2018. Um, so, you know, one another way of looking that, at this whole debate and to say, to talk about, you know, as Zahid Usain Saab said, that it's become a complete farce, but you you do realize that when you have a farce like this, whatever is happening to the PTI is in front of us, but it has basically also means that the PMLN has been robbed of any legitimacy possible. Once they come into power, who will, I mean, maybe they, they think themselves that they have a legitimate right to be there or they won the popular vote, but for the rest of the country and perhaps the world, not that it matters, it will be more of a selection process. So that, that lack of legitimacy brings its own set of problems. So, you know, there are two things here. One is that whether you have a legitimate government that comes into power after a free and fair election, or whether you have a government that perhaps did not win a free and fair election and come into power. The three problems that you identify don't change. The economic situation uh, that comes with an IMF program and the, you know, the challenges of making some very, very difficult decisions. A security situation that seems to be getting worse um, in Balochistan in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. And then the third, which is that, you know, you deal with two unfriendly neighbors. One, a situation that seems to be in a state of status quo. I mean, in the sense that it's just become an unhappy, uh, hostile situation with India. And there seems to be no breakthrough at the moment or any chance of a breakthrough. And, um, And a relationship with Afghanistan, which is just growing worse. So that free and fair election and a legitimate government which enjoys the support of the people is not going to perhaps impact all three things. These challenges will be as big for both. But of course, I mean, if you have a legitimate government that enjoys the support of the people, it might have the confidence to take some decisions. And if it doesn't, then, and this is what we have seen 2018 onwards, That when a government is tainted, when it is seen to have come into power because it was helped by the powers to be, then it becomes paralyzed. The PTI government was not able to take a lot of decisions and the PDM government that followed was even worse. So now the fear, my fear is that, is this also going to be, you know, a deterioration that we will see?
0: Yeah. And... and, Uh, and i was gonna say like you know and that's the the whole sort of you know any new government when people in pakistan the part the the term is new mandate and has a new mandate to allow and make tough choices quote unquote any government as legitimate as it can be has a limited sort of runway to do that even in the us people say the first year is basically it the second year is midterms and then the Mm -hmm. president is at risk of becoming a lame duck president um which usually more often than not happens in Pakistani context. It's a shorter runway and we play out 2024, 2025 becomes the third year of General Saab. Um, and I can already hear the comments coming in. And we spent about 40 minutes of our conversation without mentioning General Saab and what he wants and desires. So I would love your thoughts on sort of your read on what Pindi is looking for, because General Saab, obviously before the holidays, uh, was here in DC, and it was reported from in terms of the conversations that he had um, with members of the diaspora or people he engaged with from the community here, um, was that he feels that Pakistan will be part of the G20 by 2030. Uh, we should not lose hope. SIFC is the end all, be all solution in terms of stabilizing the economy. But that was his message here in DC. What is your read on sort of the top three priorities? Oh, and the last thing that I uh, was reported was that, you know, a very negative view of Afghans writ large, that they're criminals, essentially, is sort of like the, the terminology that was used, which links back to the repatriation of refugees issue that is being done in Pakistan. So what is what is Pindi's interest here? Because, of course, March IMF, May, June budget, those two are big events that a lot of at stake for our Pindi as well. So How does General Saab want to navigate this situation with a government that perhaps won't have the legitimacy to do the things that need to be done?
1: Look, I think the economy is now a big issue for uh, the establishment, as we call it. Um, And you can see that from the kind of decision making that has taken uh, place in the past few months, I would say the SIFC is in place Um, it is it's um, how shall I say it's sphere is expanding it was first supposed to look at you know foreign investment then apparently now uh, investment that's coming in from within the country will also uh, uh, pass through it that one window operation kind of a thing making
0: determinations on power tariffs all of a sudden exactly
1: Uh, you know and then you have obviously uh, um so they're entering the agriculture field. There are there is talk about all that will happen in there. So clearly, economy is how shall we put it a priority. I mean, I I wouldn't be able to say I don't know them well enough to say what is the one two three. But clearly, it's it is a priority. But again, the the fear here is that when. You are in the kind of situation that Pakistan is in, which is that the governance system seems to have come to a halt. Then it's very difficult to see how any decision making is taking place. And you know, and let me just explain what I mean because I'm trying to make sure that I say this as accurately as possible. That you know, when we had the PTI government come in in 2018, there there was this initial perception, even within the PTI, that, you know, this was a fresh start for the country, they had the, they would have the technocrats, they would be able to take decisions, but they didn't. Perhaps, I mean, you know, initially, there was some effort to stick to the IMF program. But with the kind of political instability that a government is facing, or it did face, it really wasn't able to do much. COVID didn't really help matters. Then came in, then we The process began with the vote of no confidence and everybody began talking about how the PDM government was more experienced, the PMLN was more experienced, basically the problem with Imran Khan and PTI was that they were incompetent, they were inexperienced, they just didn't know how to run a government, but PMLN will come in and fix things. We saw how that happened also and how that played out. So clearly, experience, lack of experience doesn't seem to make much Some of a difference. Then, when we were sort of, uh, you know, the parliament's term was ending, then started the third version of this rosy future, which was that. These are such difficult political decisions and, you know, you can't really expect political governments to take them and they're always looking at the people, blah, blah, blah. So now the caretaker government will come in, it might stay on for longer than three months and they will not be bothered about elections or people or whatever, and they will take the tough decisions. They didn't take the tough decisions either. Because for me, I'm. and let me just explain what I mean here, that for me you know, raising the electricity tariffs or raising the gas tariffs is not a tough decision. The IMF is telling you to do it and you just do it. That's not a tough decision. The tough decisions would be, are you privatizing something? Are you getting rid of all the, uh, you know, uh, how shall we put it, Um, all of these um, subsidies that you, you give to the rich and the powerful? Are you restructuring the economy? That hasn't happened either. Now, there's an excuse for each one of these governments, you know, that we are privatized PIAs on schedule or whatever. But so far, none of those tough decisions have been taken. So, to me, as I said, I'm really not sure. But I think the problem in Pakistan has always been, even with our military dictatorships in the past, that the problem of political legitimacy becomes so big that nobody is able to take the decisions that need to be taken. And I think the Musharraf era is a very good example of this. Here was somebody who came in, who in terms of perception and in terms of the mood in the country was also welcomed, was quite popular in some ways. Perhaps he wouldn't have won an election, but you know, in terms of pushback from society or civil society, political parties, just wasn't there. He had the world also... Uh, you know uh, being friends and yet he was not able to make a lot of he
0: he was unable to put a retail tax on retail
1: exactly he was he was not able to I mean do a lot of things in the political sphere that we don't need to get in but that is a perfect example he said I will tax the retail sector the guy the traders came out and that was the end of that because political legitimacy became important to him. So it's not a personal choice. There is something about the political and economic and social framework of Pakistan that eventually everyone, and that includes uh, political parties and that includes military dictators, that legitimacy becomes such an issue that nobody is really able to make the tough decisions. So my fear generally is that... um, Everybody may talk about the economy and that includes the establishment, but the political will still seems to be missing. I can be wrong. I hope I am proven wrong in the coming days, but I just don't see it.
0: And if I may sort of add a nuance, you said political will and a lot of people will think of it as politicians having the will, but you mean, right. I want to make sure I I mean,
1: the the, the political will in terms of all the stakeholders and that includes the bureaucracy that includes the military establishment that perhaps also includes the business community. I mean, you know, they're again asking for the subsidized tariffs. I don't know about the, the, I'm not the best person to talk about the energy subsidies that go to export sectors, but the little I do understand is that it's business
0: as usual. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the whole challenge, right? I think my whole issue over the last two years or going back years now, actually, not even two, has been that I cannot point to as the North Star of Pakistan, or what the North Star of Pakistan is in the minds of Pakistan's elites who make very big decisions in drawing rooms and the most dominant of them all of course is in Rawalpindi, the drawing room of all. Um, And when you don't have that vision, you're not going to be able to communicate that effectively, right? Like Khan Saab for all his ills had a vision, Riyasat Medina. Now we could play with that and we could say, okay, kya idea kya hai? Jaisa bhi tha, ta but a argument tha. Uswebi, there were issues. Before that, it was the PMLN's vision of large infrastructure projects to change the trajectory of Pakistan. CPEC was the anchor of that. At this point in time, I am very sort of lost in terms of understanding that here is a country with 60% of its population under 35. What is the vision you're trying to communicate to them to rally them to sort of do things a bit differently or to rally the population to think... Do you have a sense of what that, is there a vision? Do they have a recognition they need a vision? Like what, what is it?
1: No, uh, you see, the thing is that the PMLN, what you call the PMLN vision for me is the the political machinery of the PMLN, which is that you do development, that development allows you to pass down state patronage and you build up a political machine, which allows you to win elections imran khan not what i would call a vision but i would say that it the good thing uh, about uh, this was that um, i think imran khan was perhaps in at the moment one of the few leaders who would use his populism and his uh, imagery of riyasat-e-medina whatever to you know at least prepare the people for a difficult period he never took any decisions but you know he, I felt that he actually spoke about this issue that you know, we have to improve, everybody does that, but there will be a tough spot in the middle. We will have to go through difficult times and then we will be able to make our future better. Uh, so that was something I think that he had to offer um, and um, is why he fired up the people's imagination. For the rest, unfortunately... I think the problem is, and that includes the establishment, that nobody wants to, again, that problem of political legitimacy and short term victories that they're looking for constantly, and that includes Imran Khan also, means that nobody is willing to take the long term decisions. And hence, every strategy as such is still looking for that injection of funds from abroad. So, you know, wo foreign investment. A CPEC will come along, if CPEC is not coming, the Gulfies, the Gulf states will put the money in, we will do something in agriculture. What is, to me, all of this indicates the same thing, which is that somehow, you know, very quickly, we will be able to figure out how to get this, these funds from abroad, which will allow us to get back to a nice, comfortable lifestyle without realizing, without realizing or Again, they don't have the will that in order, you have to restructure the economy if you want it. But restructuring the economy will mean that you need to take the existing funds and spend them differently. But nobody wants to do that. That is why I said, you know, that problem of political legitimacy continues to haunt them all. And I don't think that's going to change in February.
0: Well, you answered my last question, which was, you know, what, what will be the key driver? And I think we can sum it up with the problem of political legitimacy or the lack thereof um, as being the thing, the ghost, you know, the... What,
1: can um, I quickly add something? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's a political legitimacy because, you know, for uh, because of the kind of history that we have had What our leadership doesn't understand, and again, when I say leadership, it means not just the the political, but the the military, the civil, everything, that you will need to build some kind of a consensus if you want to go forward. As long as one the one at top constantly is in power and thinking I need to eliminate the other, then you face the political legitimacy problem. And all your energies are directed at that elimination not at the fixing of the problem so now you either get the elimination done and then move on or you just get everybody along and move on there is no third way but they keep thinking that you know this elimination is very quickly going to take place in three to six months and then we will figure out what we want to do in the uh, with the country it doesn't work that way it hasn't so
0: and and that ghost has been haunting uh, the country since its very foundation. Been, I mean, w- I went down the rabbit hole yesterday of reading the 1949 debate on the objectives resolution and some of the speeches given by the then opposition, which is mainly the minority com- Hindu community that was objecting to it. Um, and there was a passage there that, you know, that one of the members of the opposition was complaining that This was not on the agenda. When we flew from East Bengal to come to Pakistan, to come to Karachi for this debate, we didn't even know this was going to be tabled. Um, The quorum is improper at this point in time. And what you're trying to push in the the constituent assembly, this was the argument, uh, was that forget about the Islamic clauses and all of that. Just put it to the people. You're the constituent assembly. You don't have the right to put something like this in the sort of preamble of the constitution, take it to the people, take some more time to think about it, get input from from folks on this. And none of that was done. And it was just pushed through all of the amendments, proposed amendments were rejected, and Liaquat Ali Khan had his own way. Um, and the irony among ironies was that this was the Islamic preamble to the constitution that Sir Zafrullah Khan vehemently supported as well. And, you know, now we kind of know what happened to Sir Zafrullah Khan's own community later on down the path when the Islamic monster was let loose. But forget about the Islamic clauses. I was thinking about this, um, you know, after going down that rabbit hole that 1949 to 2023, we still have the same issue. Parliamentarians in Parliament say that bill or So I think, again, as you rightfully, and I agree, and we can end on that note that that is the core problem. Every experiment, but the inclusive constitutional experiment has been tried, and all of them have failed. And perhaps it's time we try the more inclusive constitutional process in this country.
1: Uh, We can only hope. My fear is that things will get a lot worse. I don't know if they're going to get better, but I can guarantee you that they're going to get a lot worse.
0: Well, on that note, let's go out of this episode into self-care mode and do some yoga or something. So, Arpa, thank yeah. you so much for taking out the time. Always wonderful speaking with you and, uh, you know, keep up the great work. Lovely reading your columns, watching your show. So, uh-huh. thank you so thank much. Thank
1: you. Thank you for listening to me. Thanks, so there. It really enjoyed this.